Hello, everyone. I am Ben Dominich. I'm editor-at-large at The Spectator World, and I am joined today by uh, a couple of people. Two Matts, Matt Purple, who is digital editor for The Spectator, and Matt McDonald, who is our presence here today as managing editor to inform these two Americans about what's going on as it relates to the passing of Queen Elizabeth. So, to the mats, first I just have to say to you, cheers to the Queen, since we have some uh, wonderful cider, Magnus cider here today. Cheers. Irish, Irish cider. Irish Most cider. Most appropriate. Very appropriate. So, Matt M., what is your initial reaction to everything that you've seen happen in the last several days related to the death of the Queen? So, it's pretty much unfolded exactly as I would have expected it to unfold. There's been a lot of you know, shock initially, though whether you should be shocked at a 96-year-old woman dying isn't, you know, not, it's not necessarily the most shocking thing in the world, but obviously the, the big, you know, paradigm shift and change is the fact that for the vast majority of people who are alive on this planet, the Queen has always been there. And that's the case both in Britain and Europe and, and the US. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the, re the reaction back in the UK has been more pronounced than I think I was expecting it to. They cancelled Premier League soccer, or they postponed the Premier League football soccer this, this weekend, which I wasn't expecting. Also, I thought it was a completely unwarranted step considering that rugby and cricket continued. I think you could have done a much better job of honouring, you know, the departed monarch by having a full stadium full of people paying their respects, though maybe they think that soccer... Singing together. I mean, I saw yeah. that, that West Ham imagery. Yeah, I think maybe, I think it's possible the Premier League thought that some British football fans may not do that, and therefore they want to sidestep <laughs> that. Whereas, obviously, you know, rugby and cricket. Has <laughs> there was a bit of uh, virality to Lizzie's in the box. Yeah, I saw that. That was at the uh, Shamrock Rovers game in in Dublin. I, you know, when it comes to that kind of those kind of comments, I, I, when there's obvious, you know, offensive humour to it, I think I think that's much easier to understand and tolerate as part of you know being in a free Western society as opposed to some of the criticism coming from American college professors, mostly, where their issues with Queen Elizabeth as a representative of the royal family entirely self-serious and predicated on her role as being, you know, the British Empire, which obviously is pretty distant. I mean, I'm not a huge royalist. I'm also not a historian. I don't really know anything. I've just got this accent and people ask me about this. <laughs> but from what, from what I know about, you know, the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, as it relates to the Commonwealth and, you know, the end of the British Empire, m most of what she did was signing, you know, or like former British colonies were going independent and she was saying, you know, best of luck to you. You know, Barbados, I think, went independent last year. There were loads of countries which did that in her reign. And so when you take that as part, and then you measure that against the, you know, comments from this Carnegie Mellon professor who, you know, is describing her as, you know, like a, a, effectively like a genocidal raping maniac. And you're like, well, I mean, as long as I've been alive, she's been a little old lady. So I'm not entirely sure how true that, how true that comment rings. I don't really remember her bestride a, ho a horse running into battle, you know, yelling, kill the Africans. Well, exactly. No, and, I, and even, you know, that, that professor in particular doubled down. She was like, look, I'm the product of the British Empire. One of my parents is Nigerian. The other is from, I think, Trinidad and Tobago. And so she said, like, they couldn't, I'm not going to apologize because, you know, they only got the opportunity to higher education through the British Empire. 
look at what Britain did and, and the, you know, and the Queen as an avatar of Britain did in like the Nigerian Civil War in the late 60s. I went on the Wikipedia page and didn't see anything about the Queen having an active hand in it. I think it's one of these, it's one of these strange things where... Well, when she took over, the Mau Mau was, I believe, you know, like five years in or something sure. like that. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things where I feel like you're, there's... I think you have a right to be... Like, there are many people who have ultimately got a right to feel aggrieved at, like, the British government or the British army or, you know, the British Foreign or Home Office, right? Uh, for how, you know, and they're, they're the people in... Britain who make those decisions about the way in which, you know, they get involved in, uh, in other cultures. It's not really been the Queen or the monarch in Britain doing that for probably, what, 300 years? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> so, so can I just ask you, Matt Purple, as a yeah. paleocon... Sorry, <laughs> uh, are, are you required to also be an Anglophile? Uh, sort of, not a, not a monarchist, thankfully. Um, although I have close friends who are monarchists. Oh no, it's, and, but it's good to say that when you're on college campuses because they think you say anarchist. Yeah, they're friendly, with you. and they think you're edgy too, which is always that counts for everything these days. No Twitter, I'm not a monarchist. I apologize, but I what struck me most about this was. They were talking about the, some privy council meeting or one of the rituals they have to go through in the wake of her death that's completely inscrutable to me as an American. But, and they said it was the first time in history it would ever be televised, even though it stretches yeah. back centuries. And I remember that, that's when I think the full weight of this hit me because 70 years, right? I mean, she was on the throne for 70 years. I believe her, her coronation was televised, but everything else yeah. generally wasn't. And the the amount that we have changed and the events that have gone by and you know the the progress that's been made or regression depending on how you look at it that that we've gone through you it was just it was another time and of course that has implications for how we view her through the lens of colonialism because they thought about it very differently back then from how we think about it today but it also just she was one of those constants anywhere in the world right she was one of those rare people, those rare institutions that remained consistent in an age when so much is in flux and so much is changing so rapidly. And, you know, even for an American, it was, there's almost like this little calm, comfortable feeling that I, you knew she was on the throne, you knew she was still there. And now that she's gone, what other ancient person do we have who's Tom Brady, I guess. I can't, think, <laughs> I can't think of another one. Never again are we going to hear a New York stereotype saying, what, you think you're the Queen of England? That's gone forever. The thing that I think is so jarring about it, I've tried to think about why I'm so disturbed by her passing, because it doesn't make sense to be disturbed. She's incredibly old, so it's not tra tragedy. There's no, you know, extended illness yeah. of pain. It's not like Diana. Exactly. There's no suddenness. You know, yeah. there's no, you know, sort of out of nowhere nature to it. And so I've been trying to analyze why do I feel so sad about this? And the takeaway that I have is essentially what you said, which is that we live in an era of the decay and the decline of faith in institutions. And she was a representative, an avatar for an institution. And that regardless of what you thought of her or her, you know, what she represented, what it did represent unquestionably was stability and an evenness, something that you could count on. And I feel like to a certain brand of American who has been, you know, gone through the upheaval of the last decade or so in America, something like that gave us a feeling of, well, it's okay. She's still around. 
Yep. And you don't have that anymore. And just in the same way that you see the passing of sort of a generation of politicians in America, you know, I didn't really like Orrin Hatch, but it made me feel good that like Orrin Hatch was just like a senator and just like, okay, this is old Mormon guy. You still it's, got, it's you here, still got you know? Diane Feinstein. Yeah, well, that's that's fair. That's fair. And and she should go to sleep every day at four o'clock as the doctor recommends. But the, but the point just being like that institutional fracture and decay seems like a very real thing. And so I have to ask you, I mean, what do you think comes next? Do you feel like we're going to enter a period where republicanism, you know, rears its head uh, in response to whatever Charles does? Yes, I think it's Obviously, we're speaking, what, four days after the event itself happened, and it's a case of, you know, when it's the, the, when's the right time and a place to start having those conversations. The way that the, the process of changing monarch goes is obviously Charles becomes king at the, on the, mo like the minute that Queen Elizabeth dies, but then he's not crowned for another 10 months because it takes 10 months to plan a, a coronation and all of the trappings around it. In that period is going to be, I think, when you, like, it's not, I, I don't think anyone, anyone who is speaking about, you know, getting independence or get rid of the monarchy or defunding the monarchy or whatever should be taken seriously if they say that in the next 10 days before she's, you know, the funerals happen. But there is absolutely a time and a place to have that conversation. And, it, and I can see that happening in the next 10 months or so before he's crowned. Jacinda Ardern this morning, I think, was already saying, well, look, I... She is a you know, smaller Republican who thinks that New Zealand should be a republic rather than have it, having a monarch. And I, she basically reaffirmed her commitment to that idea, but, say like, but she said, look, now is not the, not the time to discuss that, but we will discuss it and like my, my views remain the same. I think that you'll see other you know, Commonwealth countries, former colonies, having the, uh, having the same kind of conversations. Jamaica was already talking about it. You've got like this generational shift where if you're older... If you're, you know, 40, if you're 45, 50 plus and up, then you're much more, and you live in the Commonwealth, you're much more sympathetic to the idea of the monarchy and what it represents than the young generations are. And so those conversations are going to start to play out now. A big part of that is also the Queen, as, as far as you consider members of the British royal family, the Queen was obviously the most phenomenally popular of all of them. You know, the Queen, as I said, for the, I, I'm just over 30, if you're, for my entire lifetime, the Queen has been a little unthreatening old lady, which is very, very useful diplomatically. You know, she can uh, offset or handle any American president that you throw her way. She can play that, the role where she isn't threatening and, and therefore have a, you know, a, having that figurehead, I think, have played an important role in the Irish peace process and the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. If you'd have, if you had... I don't know if it's not fair to judge Prince Charles on, oh, sorry, King Charles III on four days of being king, but historically, as prince, he's wanted to stick his oar in a bit more in political issues. And he's male and therefore, you know, potentially much more high testosterone. I don't know, I don't know how that process would have unfolded <laughs> if you didn't have, if you had, you know, 50 year old Charles overseeing mm -hmm. that, you know, as the figurehead rather than the little old queen. As far as popular members of the royal family you've got left now, I mean, people like Charles, people will make up their minds on. But generally speaking, a lot of people don't like him because of you know their perception of how he treated Diana or him getting uh, being vocal and and not as apolitical as the monarchy could be. So I mean, people, I think he's got to up his favorability in order to stave off these kind of conversations. William is popular. Uh, Kate Middleton is popular. Their kids are popular. 
But then by and large, you're going to have people casting around and looking at other members of the royal family and being like, well, so who's now the most talked about member of the royal family? Is it Prince Andrew? I know that he's looking after the corgis now that she's died, but maybe there should be a fit and proper person's test before, <laughs> before, that, yes. before that happens. And then, I mean, if you're a Republican, again, smaller, I have to keep saying that, you like Prince Andrew is kind of like the perfect royal for you because he seems if everything that has been reported about him uh, bears true even uh, it's you know it represents everything that you think the monarchy is like yes they are you know using their power to take advantage of people who they shouldn't be able to do and they're, get, they're getting it hushed up and not held to account in the same way that you know uh, your average citizen would for like a, a alleged crime of that magnitude if uh, the Queen was the person who was protecting Andrew in, in all of that kind of stuff, the fact that she's gone now, if, if, if he's not able to pay off his settlements and is, and is going to, like, in that kind of level of scrutiny is what we look at the royal family through now, I mean, these arguments about independence are not going to go away. And they're gonna, they'll become stronger and louder. Matt, what, what, what is your take on uh, sort of what this does to the power of, of Britain from the American perspective, because I do think that there was something tangible about the Queen's presence that made Americans more positive toward Britain in a lot of different senses. You know, there's, there's kind of a sweetness, the old lady kind of the ideal grandmama kind of role that she had. And now in its absence, do you think that relations are going to decay a little bit? Our, our colleague Oliver Weissman uh, wrote for Politico about how the fact that the queen herself was kind of an Americanophile uh, and you know came and visited Kentucky and things like that <laughs> was something that helped the relationship. How do you think that changed? Yeah, I think she was almost an unimpeachable character in American eyes. And you know, getting back to what you were saying before, I'm not a monarchist. Sorry, Tack, where I used to work, but I'm, I'm not. But I, I I'm a small R Republican. But I do. What's amazing, the reason why I am is because I don't think hereditary power is a good selection device for that kind of in, immense power, right? I think that hereditary selection is not good enough. It's amazing, though, how Queen Elizabeth almost single-handedly turned that argument on its head for almost the entire time she was on the throne. We went through good presidents and bad presidents, right? And America started to look fairly unstable, but Britain never did quite in the same way because at least they had the queen sitting atop everything. Right, that constant kind of remained. She, she kind of remained. She made monarchies look remarkably stable, and I think that is going to be the question for the UK going forward. She kind of had frozen all of that in time, like you were saying. Right, she froze out the the anti-monarchists. Are they now going to come back in just because she was? You don't have such an unimpeachable figure on the throne anymore. So far as America goes, I think you know, it could lead us to have a little more pride in our system for that reason, for the reason you were just talking about. It does, you know, that this kind of frog-eared character sitting on top of the throne, it's not the same as this incredibly elegant queen, although I do think Charles has grown into the role quite a bit, but it's just, it, it'll never quite be the same, I think. It's going to reignite so, those conversations which were being had 85, 90 years ago about the queen's uncle, Edward the yes. Eighth. The queen was never yeah, meant to be the queen because she was the eldest daughter of George, who was the second brother. Edward was the, was the king who was, you know, the first in line after George V died. Edward, 
you know, ha was a Nazi sympathizer, so probably not the ideal person to have as the monarch. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was in, in the middle of the 1930s. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, you know, those comments. He, he just met with them, that's all. Yeah. all he did. He <laughs> shook some hands, but, but exchanged like, you know, some kisses. We, there hasn't really been a conversation about suitability to rule since before World War II. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are waiting for after the funeral to have those conversations. Can I just say, too, I think timing is everything because, you know, when it rains, it pours. And the British know that literally as well as figuratively. And the problem is that right now Britain is going through almost a cascade of different crises, similar oh to the way gosh. the United it's, States it's is. It's insane, the it's, level of things. I talk to my, my British friends and it's just an argument of my country's worse. No, my country's worse, you know, batting the ball back and forth. The cost of living crisis this winter looks to be very dire there. You have a lot of the uncertainties of Brexit that still remain, the Irish border, issues like this. The new prime minister is very unpopular and was not elected. You know, we'll soon have to face an election. And on top of this comes the death of that one constant that they had. So I think that, I think the timing is just very bad. And I think so far as Americans look at the UK, it's not that I think we're developing a negative view of it. I just think we don't think it's as stable as, you know, the land of Harry Potter that we once imagined, right? I think, I think Americans are mentally placing the UK in an accurate sense uh, as being a diminished nation um, and that they had been previously placing it in an inaccurate sense in many measures as being kind of a step above where currently is economically and, and so you're welcoming us to the club of diminished nations yes exactly yeah <laughs> That's it's joke. like it's, come on <laughs> in, <laughs> come on in. <laughs> no, the, um, we have to talk about harry and megan i i kind of yes. want to push back on that point uh, beforehand quick okay go ahead well i think that britain is facing a number of crises you're right so are a, a vast number of other european countries britain is still you know within europe even though it's left the european union a world leader with a stronger economic base and stronger, you know, it's, it's better set up to confront all these crises than a lot of other European uh, nations are. Energy crisis-wise, I'm sure France has got more nuclear power than we do, but Britain is nowhere near as screwed as Germany, for example, is. I would say that this as an issue is, uh, it's, it's kind of unhelpful considering Britain does have like these, you know, a multitude of crises, as you say, Brexit, cost of living, energy crises, which they've been facing throughout all the summer, rather than addressing those issues, the leading power, which has been, you know, which conservatives have been in power in the UK since uh, 2010 in, in some form or another, you would want to see the party in power solving those issues and having serious policy debates and arguments about that. Throughout their leadership conversation, that didn't really happen. It was more just like, we'll tell you the plan after the election. And then once that's settled, literally the week that, the week that you've got the leader and, you're, and they're going to say, like, well, you know, let's kick into gear and solve these issues, you have the queen dying. So ultimately, it, Britain's not, it's not necessarily set up as well as it, as it could be, but I think you can blame the, there's possibly more of a space to blame the elected leadership of, of this country for that. But I think perception is everything. And one thing I've come to realize is that the perception of America and a lot of European nations is that it's one big mass shooting right now, right? That we are really, there's like fights on sidewalks in the middle of the street. I had to dodge three and, on the way here. I know, it's, just, it's <laughs> relentless, like that South Park episode. Um, and, I, and so I think everything you just said is true, especially vis-a-vis -vis Germany, that, that's very, very true. But I think Britain's perception around the world is, is in decline right now. And I think this is only going to feed into that perception. Rightly or wrongly. Yeah, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't help with our image problem. The Harry and Meghan issue, sure. which is actually 
attendant to the problem that you identified. There was a wonderful uh, Babylon Bee uh, headline about Meghan Markle furious at Queen for having the audacity to die and undermining her podcast promotion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and look, I, I'm not so much in the automatic hate of Meghan Markle Club as some people are online, just because I, I think she's just kind of daft and like a TV actress, just kind of, like, this is just a stupid person. You know, this is not, like, I don't think of her as being like, this is not an intentional neutron bomb thrown in the midst of the monarchy, you know, designed to bring it down, yes. which is kind of the attitude that some people have towards her. It's just like, no, nah, she's just kind of a dumb person, you know, and, narcissist, and a narcissist like all actresses are. But their movements and their responses to this have, are already being completely, you know, analyzed, diagnosed. The Daily Mail is all over this. Yeah. You know, there's all this gossip flying around, you know, about them. And there is also the specter of the criticism that they have lodged against Charles, now the king, and, uh, and everything else that is supposedly in, I guess, Harry's book or whatever it is that he has planned. And, yeah. and like, how does this play out? And don't they look much worse in the absence of the Queen for doing what they're yeah, doing? Yeah, I think they look bad. I think the reason that they looked bad anyway is that a big part of their... Uh, maybe Meghan may have thought that she was like waging war on like the patriarchy and the monarchy is the similar patriarchy, but ultimately it's just it looks like you're having a crack at the queen, who's like this little old lady, and you're and you're forcing you know you're forcing your husband to ruin his relationship with his grandmother. And people, you know, the the royal family have been you know the original reality TV family for a thousand years and so uh and so people and so you know, british, british people and americans are invested in those storylines and and that is an emotional storyline where basically you're not going to see you're not going to look kindly on the interloping actress who's coming into doing all that so yeah i mean then if you factor in her comments in the oprah interview where she alleged that a member of the royal family didn't name them had speculated aloud like what color or like skin tone their uh, their their child was going to be, and then and she interpreted that as racist and therefore the wider institution as racist and obviously I mean the the whole point is to challenge and shock and awe and, and can be, I just be interject shake, the shake up the table I don't think if you actually love your family members that speculating about something like that is necessarily racist or not. Right, and and I'm going to use myself as you an example. You can speculate what your kid looks like. Right? Well, but one of the things is, you know, my my father is Puerto Rican. My wife is like as white as the day is, you know, and and uh, you know is from Swedish and mostly you know and, and Scandinavian stuff. And I had a family member before we had our kids say, "Do you think that she'll be able to be in the sun or not?" Yeah, and and I was honestly like, "Well, I hope she can," you know, and that kind of thing. And she can, it turns out. Like, she's actually got better skin tone than, than you know, her, her mom. When Fortunately, that family member is banned from Twitter now. So. <laughs> but, but, like, <laughs> what, what a dumb thing to get mad about. That's just such a natural thing to sort of, I don't know, it's not speculative, or, right. or, you know, in a, in a negative way. It's more just like, oh, you know, do you, do you think you're going to have to lather the kid up with uh, sunscreen or are you not going to have to do that? But there, was no, there was no like aggressive attempt to say, oh, that, if I'm making this allegation anonymously about members of the royal family, there wasn't like a, but it wasn't Charles. 
Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and like they, you know, they have just been floating all of these, you know, smoke bombs. And I mean, I, I've read. I said I'm not a royalist, but I read the first quarter of Tom Bauer's Revenge, which is the biography of yes. Megan that came out earlier this year, and he paints a fairly, a fairly rigorous character, you know, caricature of her as someone who says something, doesn't get hold to account for it, and then just keeps repeating that pattern. And then if you go back and check what she actually said and what the evidence is, usually there's an enormous gap between the evidence and the evidence in the story. I kind of think that, that pattern's likely to continue. I think the benefit, like the smartest thing for Meghan to do would be to, you know, step back and allow Harry to repair his relationship with the royal family. I say that against my own self-interest because obviously I want to cover... The, of course. The, no, the, no. The, the traffic Please spikes. don't yeah. say that. <laughs> no, are you Please. kidding? Meghan oh. hate pieces are the basis for so many media companies my, continuing. My job is dependent on the fact <laughs> that she stays out there and in the open. But um, how does this play out, Matt? I don't know. It's so... I want to go back to what you said before because I thought you hit the nail on the head. I've realized there's a real transatlantic divide over Meghan Markle herself because Americans, I read about her and I just kind of shrugged and said, okay, she's a millennial brat and then I moved on with my life, right? I didn't really see her as anything more than that. Whereas I think in the UK, there's a sense that she's this great insight into America. You know, she's like this lens into the dark heart of America or she, at least she says something more about our country than we're willing to let on. And I just, I, I guess I haven't thought that's, that's true. I think the, the real divide is generational. And it gets back to what we were saying before about the queen. The queen, I mean, we'll never really know for sure, but she may very well not have wanted that life. The expression you always hear is gilded cage, right? She didn't have any freedom. She couldn't just go and do what she wanted, but she swallowed it completely out of duty, out of total loyalty to an institution, excuse me, that she thought was larger than herself. And Megan did not do that. I think Megan took the opposite approach. She was thinking, I want the fairy tale wedding. What is this going to do for me? Right? How is this going to build me up? How is this going to build my brand? How is this going to satisfy my needs? <laughs> and, yeah. and, and when she realized that, wait a minute, it's actually a hell of a lot harder than you thought it was. And it's not just about running your mouth off. And it's not just about your own narcissistic pursuit of racial or social justice. She decided she wanted out. As Dutch, as Dutch, they were appointed, they were given the title as Duke and Duchess of Sussex when on the royal wedding. Sussex is the county where I was born and lived for the first 23 years of my life. After so they it's got your the, fault. After they got those titles, uh, Harry and Meghan did one day of royal duty in Sussex. They went to Brighton, Chichester, and I think Haywards Heath or Crawley. Like, but literally, they did three towns. It's an afternoon of work. After that, she's like, I'm done. Like, that's not... <laughs> She went to three hospitals. The queen did that for years. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> but I, so I think, that, I think the question that gets raised is, what does this say about our generation's sense of self and sense of entitlement and inability to conceive of the fact that something historical and institutional is bigger than we are? I think what we're finally seeing is what the 17th most attractive member of a college cheerleading squad would look like if she was married to a potential <laughs> king of England. Um, and so, look, I, I am, I have to say, I'm, I'm surprised at how sad I am. Yeah. And my wife has said this to me. She said, you know, I'm surprised how sad I feel. And that's what I think we should close out with. It, it, there is, I think, a palpable sadness here in America to the loss of a monarch of a different nation that we are not a part of, that we 
went to war to not be a part of. And a sadness even among, you know, the strongest, most vociferous Irish Republican or, you know, adjacent friends of mine. And they seem to all be generally surprised at their own sadness. Yeah. Like, I, I can't figure out why I feel this way. Do either of you have an explanation? Um, I was like listening to God save the, the queen and feeling See, something on the inside like, that I've like, never felt like, before. Why? Yeah. Why? You know, and I'm like, like 1776. Like, <laughs> yeah, not, no, I mean, you're, you're, you're somebody who's, who's like, the boys of Bunker Hill. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I'm a real paleocon, yeah, like what exactly, that used to mean. Exactly. But it's, so, I, I so, felt uh, inexplicably uh, choked up a little bit. Yeah. And maybe it's that sense that her generation really did have something we lack. And that that's now passing away. Yeah, we're going to, I think it's, uh, it's, as far as being, you know, history-making figures in the 20th century and inserting that important role and, and longevity and her having those ties to World War II, you know, the fact that she was, you know, she's... That image of her up on VE Day. Exactly, yeah. Two steps away from Churchill. Is amazing, right? She's you know when she when she took office, Churchill was the prime minister the second time round, and there's all of those values which you're kind of. I think it's, it's a, quite a boomer thing to be tied to the values of World War Two. I, I don't say that in a derisive way at all because I think that that's one of the most positive traits of yes. of, of my parents' generation. But she's it's another it's another tie to back then uh, going, and so regardless of what you think politically about like the royal family or about. Britain or the British Empire, I think that explains kind of like sadness. It's that you've lost that, the, you know, this mortal plane has lost another tangible connection to that, that era and those values and that way of thinking. Those good old days when we said Nazis instead of Nazis. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt, Matt from Olympic Media Studios, uh, this has been another edition of the District Spectator World Podcast. I'm Ben Dominich. We'll be back soon. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The District, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the American edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, please visit spectatorworld.com.